0: Well, you'll want to go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians as we continue our study. The theme of 1 Corinthians is correction and condemnation. And on Wednesday, we did a little bit of an overview, a little background on Corinth because we hadn't done that yet. I'm going to breeze through that and then we will get to chapter 3. We are still in the section of the book that is dealing with divisiveness. The city of Corinth, as I shared on Wednesday, was a successful entertainment center. It was a port city. Uh, There was a lot of commerce there. There was a lot of business. It was a thriving place to live. Obviously, you had your uppity-ups, your upper crust type people living high off the hog. And then you had your poor, poor, poor people all in the same city. And this helps us understand what the church might look like when we talk about the city and the environment that they lived in. They were a successful entertainment center. You know the Olympian games. There were the Isthmian games. People would travel to enjoy those, to watch those, which would bring in business. And people from different backgrounds would would gather there for things. It was destroyed by Rome in 146 B.C. So this is about, uh, you know, over 200 years before Paul is writing. It had gone through that big... Um, event. It was rebuilt about a hundred years later and it was made up of Greeks, Roman officials, businessmen, and Near Eastern peoples. And one of the things I wanted to point out with that is that the church also is built up of this hodgepodge of people. Uh, you obviously have Jews and Jews were raised to see everybody else as Gentiles. Ugh. And you have Romans, who the Greeks don't like and the Jews don't like, but these are all people that have been brought together by the blood of Christ and they're in the same church. So naturally when divisions come up, their background, their culture, their upbringing, the way that they were raised clearly plays into those things. It plays a factor in all of it. This is a picture of what the modern day area of what they would call the Acro Corinth. very creative in their names, This was the fortress that was above the city of Corinth. And when there was danger, everyone in the city could run to the Acro-Corinth. But unique to this was the temple of Aphrodite. And as we mentioned on Wednesday, it housed over a thousand prostitutes. And so you have this man has a knowledge of God written on his heart. And man is trying to deal with that. Um, I was listening to sports radio the other day, and they were open and honest. And one of them said, look, they're talking about church. They're like, does anyone actually like going to church? And they're like, no, no one likes going to church. They should make it shorter so we can get out on time. But why did they even go in the first place? Well, man knows that he has a hole, and he needs to fill that hole. He needs to somehow appease a holy and righteous God that is his creator, But for the most part, man takes that knowledge and suppresses it and sears their heart and comes up with a God of their own liking. So here we have in Corinth a situation where they say, wow, I need need to worship God, but man, I sure love lust. Best case scenario, let's combine these two. And through these acts of immorality, they actually thought they were worshiping God. It's disgusting, right? But this is the type of culture they live in. This is the type of culture that the church in Corinth, these people, are saved out of. John MacArthur says that even to the pagan world, the city was known for its moral corruption so much that the idea of being a Corinthian came to represent gross immorality and drunken debauchery. Gross, gross city. Paul ministered in Corinth for 18 months on his second missionary journey. And sometime after that, Paul leaves, but Apollos becomes the pastor. So the I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, that starts to make sense, right? Starts to make sense. Paul had written this church another letter that was corrective in nature, and he refers to that in 1 Corinthians 5. And the church as a whole, as we so gently put it, is struggling. Struggling. Is struggling. Remember, uh, he is writing to them, first of all, this introduction that actually encourages them and it reminds them that there are true believers in this church and that this church really is made up of saints that have been set apart. But as saints, we, we sin. We struggle with sin. We wrestle and battle that unredeemed humanness that is the flesh. And if we are not careful and diligent to put off that sin, then we continue to struggle in it. But he says, look, you are holy because Christ made you holy. Your father in heaven is holy. Therefore, you should be holy. You can't be like the culture and say, ah, you know what? I'm just going to live my life however I want. It's incompatible with your new life in Christ. Then in verse 10 of chapter 1, all the way through Chapter 4, verse 21, he is dealing with the same issue. He is dealing with divisiveness. Now, in this book, he's going to deal with divisiveness. He's going to deal with immorality. He's going to deal with lawsuits. He's going to deal with marriage and singleness. He's going to deal with spiritual gifts. But he's going to take this head on and start with divisiveness. And part one, not necessarily lesson one, and I hope it's not too confusing. We've had more lessons than there are parts. Part one was the exhortation to be unified. He first called them to examine their own heart and their own life, and then he exhorted them in verse 10, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete, the same mind, in the same judgment. So verse 10 sets the stage for the, these other chapters all the way through the end of chapter 4. Moving on to part two, we then began to analyze the witness stand of wisdom. The witness stand of wisdom. Because they are using their own wisdom, they're using worldly wisdom to make their decisions. And think of something this past week that you were confronted with. Uh, Do I watch this TV show or not? Do I listen to this song or not? Do I say these words to my mother or not? Do I do this with my friend or not? You're all faced with those decisions. In this moment, do I trust in the Lord? I'm not going to sing the song. Trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding, knowing that then he will make my path straight. Or do I say, you know what? I'm going to tune out the Holy Spirit for a moment. And I'm going I'm to do what pleases or I'm gonna to listen to this celebrity, or I'm gonna to listen to these other advisors out there. Because at this age, it's not really a surprise what the Bible says, right? You know what it says about mom and dad. You know what it says about purity. You know what it says about friends. You know that you should love others as you love yourself. I mean, you know that, right? But it's a matter of, why don't you always follow it and do it? Some of you are unbelievers. And so you have no godly wisdom. You need to repent and believe in Christ. But if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit who indwells you, but you still have this unredeemed humanness that Paul describes in Romans 7. And there are times that we suppress the wonderful truth and knowledge that God has given us and we follow after the worldly thing. I find it helpful to go back later and evaluate. How'd that work out for you? How did it work out for me? Instead of being calm and patient, was I a mean, angry ogre? Did that really get what I wanted? Did that sinful thing gratify me? Or was it just a passing pleasure? And so when we look at this passage and we understand, Paul is calling to the witness stand of wisdom. First of all, the risen Lord in this and he's going to use this example later on in first corinthians 5 that instead of saying just do what pleases you or i'm not hurting anyone that you need to realize that sexual immorality is a, a a millstone around your neck but the corinthians are thinking like the world so when it comes to things like society and how they interact with one another instead of saying ah we should love everybody with the love of christ Instead, they're elevating the rich people and they're looking down upon the poor people. That is worldly wisdom. So then it leads to divisions. Similar to the book of Judges, where it says there is no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They're kind of all doing what they want to do, how they want to do it. Instead, they should use God's wisdom to make their decisions. And so he brings up the crucified Christ. Look, don't just trust me. Go back to Jesus. Remember, Jesus saved you. When he saved you, it wasn't that you were mighty, that you were noble, that you were like smart. He saved you despite of those things. And he saved you for his glory. So don't go back to your previous worldly wisdom. Go to the wisdom of Christ. And then he talks about themselves and how they were saved and converted by God and not by themselves. And so they should trust what he is teaching them. And then you have Paul's example himself. He is saying, look, I minister to you, not with my own words, not with my own thoughts, but I minister to you with God's wisdom. And I want you to go back to God's wisdom and I want you to cling to God's wisdom. Part three would be the distribution of God's wisdom. And this is what we covered on Wednesday. But how does that fit into Paul's exhortation on unity? He has a message that he's delivering. He's delivering the Holy Spirit is delivering this message. And so that puts more value or more credence into that message. And we use the illustration. If you walked into a fancy jewelry shop and you saw all the little like uh, glass cases and you saw a a diamond ring in there and had a price tag, you'd feel pretty confident about that diamond ring being like real, right? or that watch being real and genuine. It's a reputable store. But on the other hand, if you came across this dude walking down the South Lake Town Square, and he was saying, psst, I got something for you. All right, at discount price, I have a Smolex ro- watch. And you're like, Rolex? He's like, yes, Smolex. And it's uh, 25 bucks. That's a shady dude doing shady things. Well, we have the Holy Spirit who is delivering this wisdom to us, and so we don't question it. We trust the Holy Spirit. We discussed wisdom. I want you to go to chapter 2, verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age have understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, the things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. The Spirit is the vehicle with which we receive God's wisdom. Do you trust the third person of the Trinity? You better. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The Spirit, believer, indwells you, and the Spirit delivered through the inspiration of the Spirit through men, the very Word of God. So that's wisdom being discussed. What about wisdom interpreted? It says, The Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man, except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. If I was to jump inside your mind right now, I hope that you would not be saying, I'm confused, what's going on? Or, when's this baby over? Okay? Or, I just want to go get some more snacks and go home. I hope that if I jumped inside your mind, you're going, yeah, this is great. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this and I'm learning. But I don't know what you're thinking. You could be sitting here smiling at me right now thinking, will this guy stop talking? I don't know your mind, it's your mind. Well, when it comes to God's wisdom and God's mind, who knows the mind of God except for God? And the Spirit is God. And so the Spirit takes the wisdom of God and illuminates our heart, interprets it for us so that we can understand it. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world. So we pause. Corinthians, don't live like the world. Don't think like the world. You don't have the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know all things that are freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, this is the unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so we take this wonderful truth and we apply it to our world today, sitting here in our youth group. If you're a believer, You have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You have been forgiven of all your sins. You have been called for a holy calling. You have received the Holy Spirit. And you now know that your greatest purpose is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might, and to love others. And you have a common bond that cannot be broken with every single believer that's sitting in this room. So wherever they go to school or wherever they live or whatever they like or how old they are or how old, young they are, there's no need for division. There should be unity. Unity. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we don't have friends that we naturally gravitate a little bit you know, to more as well and stuff like that. But overall, we use this wonderful truth knowing that we know exactly what God wants because we have the Holy Spirit to promote and cultivate unity. Part four, and this is really our lesson for today, is the impediment to God's wisdom. The impediment to God's wisdom. Now we don't really use the word impediment very often. I'm really thankful that I'm pronouncing it correctly. Let me describe it to you, and I can describe it in no better way within not not the picture of Davis, but the picture of a canoe. All right, I can't believe the Hunts aren't here today to see Davis in his wonderful pose. If you don't know Davis, every year since he was like in seventh grade, he found some dumb place to take that exact same pose with. But this is the Missouri trip and we braved death by getting into canoes and going down a river. And it, it, it wasn't even dangerous, but some of you still almost died. But when I was young, I, I can't remember how old I was. My family never really went on vacations, which was awesome because I don't really like vacations somehow some way we went to the exotic location of arkansas i believe it was uh, st joe this was the buffalo river something like that and it was my dad and my brothers and i and i am the youngest child which it's always the best child we know that right um, but dad wanted us to go canoe or do you say canoeing either way and we thought this is a race We're going to get in here and we're going to go. And so the older brothers paired up and they were both bigger and stronger than me. And they used to pick on me until I got bigger and stronger than them. And then they stopped picking on me, which was helpful. And I got dad, which is good, right? Dad has old man strength and all of those things. And I thought, here we go. Well, I am canoeing as hard as I can and we are getting nowhere. And I just see them off in the distance smoking us. And I'm just, and I'm like, I look, I'm like, Dad, and he has both his legs outside the canoe. And he's not paddling at all. And he goes, look, an anchor. He was an impediment to our progress. He's the one who actually paid for the canoe rental. And while we were trying to go as fast as we could, he wanted to like enjoy the time and stuff like that. Well, there's another story with a snake involved and things like that where they tried to kill me, but I'm not going to go there today. God's wisdom is effective and is powerful and is true and prevalent and obvious. But in the church at Corinth, they were not allowing God's wisdom to be put into focus. There was an impediment to God's wisdom, and that's what Paul addresses in chapter 3. That's what he addresses in chapter 3. He says this, and you can follow along. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, now you are not yet able. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the ones who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And I hope already you see the unity in this. Some of you are saying, I'm of Paul. Some of you are saying, I'm Apollos. Look, all we're saying is I planted the seed of the gospel. Apollos watered it, but who gets the glory? God. So stop saying you're following me or him because we're both following God and that's where your hope and your priority. We're just fellow workers. God is the one who receives the glory. Our first outline point, though, is found in verses one and two. Their previous lack of growth. Now, he's he's not just commenting on their state right now. He has ministered to this church for a number of years. And he's saying, look, let's go back in the past. In the past, there was a previous lack of growth. And I, brethren, brethren's important. Could not speak to you as it's, he's not saying now, currently. He's saying previously when I administered to you. I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. You see, their previous lack of growth, and this is confusing furthered their previous lack of growth. He's talking about their ministry to them in the past, not currently. Paul spent a year and a half with these people, preaching the gospel, teaching, spurring them on. He's kept up with them through Apollos and others. And he's saying, in my ministry to you, I know that you are saved. But you have not grown as much as you should because of this. Because their previous lack of growth. You see, lack of growth leads to lack of growth, which leads to what? A lack of growth. You didn't take care of things then to prioritize and grow. So that's why you are the way you are today. The word brethren is important. He, some would argue that this is talking about they're not saved yet. They're not Christians. He's calling them brethren, all right? That they are in Christ. They are believers. And we already saw spiritual men in verse 14 and 15. But a natural man, which is the opposite of spiritual, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. Verse 15, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. And so it gets a little confusing because he calls them brethren. And then he says, but I could not speak to you as spiritual men. Okay, so you are saved, but you're not saved. He's saying, look, you are saved, but I couldn't move on to the next step. You you are stuck in level one. And I wanted to keep going, but I had to rewind and back up my ministry to you. Instead of teaching you the next thing, I had to stay at a certain level because you refused to grow. But as men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ, some would argue, they would take this passage, and they would say, ha, I told you. You can become a Christian and there be no change in your life. They were men of flesh, they're still men of flesh. This is the idea of a carnal Christian. The, I accepted Jesus into my heart. I said a prayer at some point. Well, keep in mind that one of the greatest verses to counteract that is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man is what? In Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away, new things have come. Well, who did he write 2 Corinthians to? Oh yeah, same people. And it could be that some of them read this in chapter 3 and they were like, see, I can be men of the flesh. So his second letter goes, no, 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 that's not what I was saying. But he says that they are what? They are infants in Christ. You really are saved. You really are brethren. But You have not grown how you should. There are two ideas at play. There is positional sanctification and there is progressive sanctification. The moment that you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're a new creation. You've been redeemed. You've been bought by the Lamb. You've been set apart. But positionally, we put forth maximum human effort as it is in Philippians to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And that's not a snake, all right? so that you grow closer and closer to Jesus Christ. And some of you have been saved for a very short time, and some of you have been saved for a lot of time, but we have different areas of development and Christ-likeness, and a lot of that has to do with putting off sin, putting our mind on things above, studying the Word, and growing in Christ-likeness. He says, I gave you milk to drink, Milk to drink, not solid food. What does he mean by that? I I gave you only what you could handle. Only what you can handle. I'm not going to go down and talk about amillennialism versus postmillennialism or hyper-infolapsarianism because we're just learning to walk. Actually, we're just learning to crawl right here. So I'm not going to keep going deeper and deeper in some of those things. And that's an interesting dynamic we have here with the youth group, right? You have some that aren't believers. So we want to make sure we share the gospel to you. You have some that are new believers. And so, but then you have some that you've been Christians for a number of years. And so when we instruct you, some of you are like, this is the best lesson ever. This is great notes. We're going in depth. And some of you are going, what in the world? I just came for a donut. And then I found out it's not even birthday Sunday. It's a challenge, right? It's a challenge, but we want to teach the whole word. He says, you are not yet able to receive it. You are in Christ, but for some of you, when you go over to big church and you hear that lesson on the rapture, it might be like, whew. You're not quite there in your growth, in your walk to understand those things. And this also reminds us when it comes to unity, and Paul will address this later on in the book when he talks about Christian freedom, because one of the things that came up is someone's sitting down to a nice meal and they're eating some meat. And someone's like, that was sacrificed to an idol. You, you can't eat that. And he's like, idols aren't real. What are you talking about? This person is offended. That's part of idol worship. And this guy's like, but it's delicious. And the idol isn't really anything. So they're at different levels of understanding. And so we have to come together in unity. But also, if you have people that aren't growing, it makes it tough. It makes it tough. You know, I've coached basketball for a number of years. And if you have a group and some of them are working hard and they're practicing and they're getting better. And you have the others that just kind of show up every once in a while. Well, it's hard to function as a team where some people are moving on to the next level and others are still at the same spot. What was the effect of their immaturity on the church? Well, divisions. John MacArthur says that nothing is more precious or wonderful than a little baby. All right, we'll take the the Dunphy baby and we'll pass it around. No, we won't do that. But yes, precious little babies. But a 20-year-old, but the mind of an infant is heartbreaking. A baby who acts like a baby is a joy. But an adult who acts like a baby is a tragedy. Is a tragedy. Next we see their current lack of growth. So we had talked about their previous lack of growth. as was a result of their previous lack of growth. Now we're looking at their current lack of growth. And their current lack of growth is furthered by their current lack of growth. You're like, really? You couldn't get more creative on this? Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? The word like can also be translated according. So according to worldly wisdom, according to fleshly wisdom. For one, one says, I am of Paul and another, I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? Not yet able is the same Greek word as receive in verse 2. You are not able to receive. You are not yet able to receive. To grow and develop, you are still fleshly. Keeping in mind, Romans 7, as I mentioned, Paul says, in Christ, sometimes I do the very thing that I hate. You ever been there? Yes. You love Jesus, you love the word, but then you do something sinful and you're like, why did I do that? We still battle with our unredeemed humanness. Until we get to be to heaven. And that's one of the reasons why heaven's so awesome. And we look forward to it. Imagine not struggling with sin anymore. Always thinking the right thing. Always doing the right thing. Always saying the right thing. But while we're here on heaven. uh, While here on earth. We're supposed to grow in Christ likeness. So that we over time respond more like Jesus. Sometimes we have this you know expectation of perfection in our life. And it's not going to happen guys. It's just not. But we don't excuse that sin and say, "Uh, oh, well, we hate that sin. We repent of it and we want to grow more. But he's saying they're still fleshly. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as strangers and aliens to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. Romans 6.11 says, Even so, consider your members as dead to sin. You can have victory in Christ. You can walk away from sin, but we are to, what? We are to abstain from these fleshly lusts. You think of things like polygamy in the Old Testament. Was that the norm? Were they supposed to have multiple wives? No. But in that fleshliness they gave in to temptation or they said, you know what, I need this to build my kingdom. And then you see these terrible decisions that go on. Terrible decisions. We don't tolerate or excuse sin. We hate it and we seek to move on from it, but we still understand that we battle with it. Another example, he says, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? When you are jealous or in strife, what are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? You're thinking about me, myself, and I. think of the last argument you had with your parents. Think of your friends when you had a disagreement. The root of that often is we're jealous of someone. We're jealous of something. And if we promote and continue in jealousy and strife, then that's going to further push us away from what God wants. So what do we do? We have to put off the jealousy and strife so that we can humbly submit to God and so that we can repair that relationship. When you get later into the book of 1 Corinthians, you have the whole Lord's Supper. And the people who had to work, they worked later. And they couldn't get there in time. Well, the rich people that didn't have to work as much had already eaten all the food. And so you have the rich people that are enjoying it and laughing it up. And some of them are even to the point where they're drunk on the Lord's Supper. And then you have the poor people that it's like, hey, you come over here and sit at my footstool. Do you think there's some jealousy involved in that? Do you think there's some strife? Well, you have to put those things aside. You have to think of God. I'm supposed to love God. God wants me to love them. And I put those things aside for his glory. Let's look at their current lack of growth. Can be remedied. It can be remedied. There's a solution to this. And if you are not growing in Christ Jesus, it could very well be that you've made a false profession of faith, that you have fooled yourself, and that you're really not a Christian. And you need to ask yourself, do I love sin or do I love Jesus? Do I love God's word or do I love my own mindset? It very well could be you're not in Christ, you need to repent and believe. But also it could be that you are in Christ, but you need to lay things aside and you need to pursue the right things so that you can continue to grow. The question is, how can these believers grow? Well, it's not rocket science. And we've talked about it a lot. They first need to put on the mind of Christ. Well, where do we see that? 1 Corinthians 10. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. That's what you should do. Verse 26. Consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise. There are not many... Uh, mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are. Verse 31, so then let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Go back to Christ, go back to the Lord, go back to his mindset. Put on the mind of Christ. 1 Peter two twelve. like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Well, what does it mean to long for the pure milk of the word? God's truth, God's wisdom. First step in changing. Put your eyes on your Savior who took the nails for you, who took the punishment and the wrath of God for you, and go back to Jesus and focus on him and focus on his word. What does Jesus want me to do? How does Jesus want me to live? The first part, before that, it says, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow it in respect to salvation. You put on the mind, but you also have to put aside the sinfulness. Put aside the sinfulness. And here, Specifically, he's addressing the exaltation of man. Remember the Greek culture, the different schools of thought, the philosophy and everything that was going on? I'm going to put my mind on Christ. And in doing so, I have to put aside the glory and the pride of man. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed... Even as the Lord gave eternity uh, sorry, gave opportunity to each one. Stop lifting me up. Stop lifting Apollos up. Lift Christ up. But then in verse six, you have to put aside the sin of divisiveness. I planted Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. How is this putting off the sin of divisiveness? understanding God's plan. You're a team. You're a team. You do this and I do this and you do that. Even with our our youth ministry, we have a leadership team. We have different giftedness. We have different responsibilities. We have different things we're good at and things that we struggle at, but we come together as a team. And you put aside that divisiveness knowing that there's a common goal. Just like Apollos and Paul did. Apollos isn't sitting there saying, Man, I wish I had more people following me. Paul isn't saying, Man, I wish more of them would revere and respect me. No, we're just teammates here with a common goal to see people come to Christ and grow in Christ's likeness. Simple farmers, fellow workers. Lastly, putting aside a thought process that does not give glory, that give God glory that he deserves. Putting aside a thought process that does not give God the glory that he deserves. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Now, you do catch there that it says, what? Each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So I take care of business, I do what God wants me to do. Knowing that clearly there are eternal rewards in heaven. And some would argue that they are the the crowns that we give and we just throw back at the feet of Jesus. Anything good I do is because of Jesus doing it in. Me. But we're all supposed to work, but as we're doing it, we're all pulling on the same rope. We're all cultivating and growing the same crop. We're all building the same building. Imagine if you all showed up to build the building and you all had a different plan and a different path and a different way you were going to do it. God is the one that is orchestrating all of these events. So any idea of division and selfishness, we need to throw in the trash can and we need to give God the glory that he is due. Well, as we conclude, we need to make sure that we're guarding against disunity. We need to make sure that we are guarding against disunity. Keeping in mind that our lack of growth furthers a lack of growth. And we get very individualistic when it comes to our spiritual disciplines. It is true, you will enjoy God, you will enjoy life more if you're studying His Word, if you're praying to Him, if you are worshiping with the saints, if you are fellowshipping with believers, if you are sharing the gospel, it is 100% you will enjoy it more. You'll love sin less. You'll love Jesus more. You will. But don't lose sight of the fact that as you're doing that, the church, your friends, the people around you will greatly benefit from that. Greatly benefit from that. I mean, imagine if everyone in your small group was on fire for the Lord and everyone was reading. And then you get together, and maybe you struggled that week, but they build you up and encourage you, and you go, Yeah! Versus the people in your small group not caring about Jesus, or they all don't read, so they're ashamed to answer the question. That doesn't spur you on. Please see the connection between your growth and the growth of the church. These people in Corinth struggled to grow in Christ's likeness. So they're still dealing with the same stuff. And it's come to a head. Our lack of growth furthers a lack of growth. Our lack of growth leads to disunity. Are you personally growing in Christ? Are you growing in Christ? Are you longing for the pure milk of the word? So that you may grow in respect to salvation by it. What's your time in the word look like? What's your attitude to the teaching of God's word? But you can read all you want. You can listen to every sermon ever preached. But if you are not going to proactively put aside the deeds of the flesh, it's not going to change. I know people that can like quote all these famous pastors And they go to all the conferences and all of the things out there. But their life is a dumpster fire because they won't deal with the sin. It's not just an academic pursuit. You put aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. You throw those things aside and then you long for the pure milk of the word. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. So unbeliever, you can't do this. You need to repent and believe in Christ. But Christian, you have tasted the what? The kindness of the Lord. Someone ever been incredibly kind to you and gracious and patient? How does that make you want to deal with them? Listen to them, love them, appreciate them. No one's been kinder to you than the Lord. No one's been more patient and gracious to you than the Lord. So therefore we respond by seeking to grow individually in Christ-likeness. And if you're growing like Jesus and you're growing like Jesus and you're growing like Jesus, then we are being built into one body to accomplish his work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your son Jesus who died for us. We thank you for this wonderful time to study your truth and to worship you. And I pray that we would practically think through ways to apply this in our own walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.